Alrighty, hello everybody. Welcome to another t- uh, episode of Tuna Town Talks. Today, my guest is Joey Furlan of uh, Furlan's Marine. Say hey to everybody, Joey. Hey everybody, how are y'all doing today? Awesome. Well, guys, we are here today at the uh, Biloxi Boat Show, the final day. It's Sunday. It's Super Bowl Sunday. <laughs> and I just got uh, Joey his bottle of yellowfin vodka. So uh, Really good stuff. You really like it? First it's time I ever right? had it. Very <laughs> unique flavor, but very good. Awesome, yep. man. Well, cool. Um, so, Joey, uh, Joey is uh, my mechanic. Guys, I buy boats from... Uh, if I if something goes wrong with my boat, these are the people I call. So I I really wanted to uh, get them on today and just learn more about you know your passion for fixing boats and and doing all that kind of stuff. I mean you've been doing it for a lifetime now, huh? Pretty much a lifetime. Yep. <laughs> so we, uh, where where did it all start for you? Uh, I started as at a at a young age, uh, going to uh, high school. Always enjoyed being in boats, fishing. Um, just really enjoyed everything about a boat and so when i went into the junior college here uh jackson county community college they had a a a marine mechanics program i did that along with my regular classes and uh took advantage of uh getting a degree in uh, marine engine mechanics from them really i had no idea i did i did unfortunately that was at the junior college (coughs) in gauchet yep unfortunately that program is no longer available Dang. Um, I was going to say, I don't think I've ever heard of that. That's really I, awesome. Though. It, it was it was a really good class. I had a, a really good teacher. Uh, his name was Andrew Tucker. He was a retired uh, aviation technician, so he was uh, really, you know, big on things being precise and done correctly. And so even though the class went from, you know, whatever time to whatever time every day, I always stayed extra with him really? in the afternoons and just tried to uh, – Get as much as, much as I could from him, and wow. so we. Um, I finished that program, and actually, uh, my degree uh, was in sales and marketing mm-hmm. as well. And uh, I got a job opportunity with a tobacco company. Uh, a lot of people don't even know that. Really. And so I went to work for this tobacco company for about ten years, and it was good. I <coughs> enjoyed it, met a lot of good people, but ultimately, in two thousand three, I decided. You were selling cigarettes? <coughs> I was selling Copenhagen Skull. I worked mm. for uh, U.S. Smokeless Tobacco. Okay. One of the youngest ones uh, at the time ever hired in the company. <laughs> and um, did well with the company, but I just w- kind of wanted to get back to what I loved. You wanted mechanics. And so in 2003, I, <coughs> I turned my notice in with U.S. Tobacco and uh, uh, took off from there and never looked back. It's That's been, cool. Been, uh, st- we started out working on... <clears throat> on outboards um and I actually when I was in high school I had an opportunity to work for a guy named Mr. Black his he had a body shop but his son uh Bruce Black who's still alive uh today if you're out there Bruce hello he built a lot of tooling uh fiberglass tooling for a lot of boat manufacturers that was kind of his forte I got to work with him in the body shop which is kind of where we got I got my initial exposure to the fiberglass world and um luckily with him being mr black's son i I got to see a lot of the marine side as well as we did corvette repairs and all that kind of stuff so so going back to 2003 when we opened up we obviously i wanted to do mechanic work because i had uh, that degree 
um, was pursuing that. But, you know, when you first start, it's tough uh, yeah. trying to get enough work drummed up. So basically whatever anybody was willing to pay me to do, I would do. <laughs> um, and we so we started doing a little bit of fiberglass work too, and then that's kind of how everything just took off from there. Yeah, this uh, fiberglass ended up. I mean, back then was that at one point when y'all was bread and butter. That's all it, you did, right? That's exactly right. That's all we did for a lot of years, and uh, we did a really good job at it. We we always made sure we did it right. So we working through other dealers on the uh, Mississippi Gulf Coast. Um, we did were like warranty doing warranty work, work and that kind of thing, and. Ended up developing a lot of relationships with a lot of boat manufacturers uh, through that process. And then eventually, um, as the business grew, uh, decided to bring in boat sales. And with that opportunity, basically, uh, was with Blue Wave. Mm -hmm. That was the, f the first people we decided to uh, kind of go into that venture with. Yeah. And uh, it's been a great, <coughs> a great thing, good company. Yeah, uh, how do you feel about it back. now? I mean, that's got to change up the job a little bit, right? Going from selling, but you know, going from fixing everything, and that's like Definitely. your only focus. And now you're trying to sell boats too. So Definitely, it's, <laughs> it's um, we still do a lot of fiberglass work. We still do, uh, we do a lot. Of, actually, we do pretty much everything in house. Yeah, uh, you guys are a one stop shop. To do with you know, that's why I've been telling everybody all weekend that you know, you go to Furlands, you don't have to go anywhere else for fiberglass. You don't have to go anywhere else for you know. That's right. Motors or anything like that. And that's that. one of that's the it. things that definitely does make us unique compared to uh, most other dealers, especially along the Mississippi Gulf Coast. We still do fiberglass work for most of uh, the other dealers on the coast. But it makes us unique that we can do everything in one house. We we do electronics. We do, we're do we a wet sounds dealer. We do uh, stereo installations, uh, JL audio. We do electronics. Um, we do, the, of course, all the fiberglass repairs, service department. Uh, we offer ceramic coating. If it has to do with a boat, we do it. Yeah. Uh, with the exception of aluminum welding, and we sub all that out to uh, Vincent Brule with Saltwater Fabricators. Yeah. Who does a He's real doing good job. all my stuff too. So if you guys see my new boat, like Vincent will be doing all that stuff, and he does a really good job. There. Fantastic <laughs> job. Fantastic job, and a good, a really good guy, and a, I think a uh, up and coming. Uh, yeah. good businessman too definitely man it's it's cool to see somebody as young as him you know he's he's my age he's 26 years old yeah. um but actually you know deciding to leave his job at the shipyard and then starting to weld and and build a name for himself i mean you could tell he's got a lot of passion there it, reminds me a lot of you <laughs> it, ta it takes passion it takes a lot of guts yeah you know, it, it does. really does to, to go out uh, on your own yeah to to kind of cut that tether and go okay um you know, all of this is squarely on my shoulders from this point forward. And of course, if you're a there's no benefits person, or anything like there, that. No, <laughs> I mean, eventually, you know, we were able to build up to a point where we were able to offer our employees uh, insurance and all that kind of stuff, all the benefit packages. But um, for a long time, yeah, it was. It's there were some years. There yeah. were some years that I had to go without health insurance because it just was unaffordable. You know, yeah. when we first went out uh, on our own. So, it's there's a lot more to being self-employed and mm -hmm. uh then a lot of people realize it's not it for is. everybody it's definitely know. not it's not as secure you know it's not you have yeah. to have you know I, uh, my wife has always uh lisa has always been a big supporter she's all and she's of course part of the business now but you have to have somebody uh that is accepting of what has to be done because at the end of the day when you're self-employed whatever it is it's got to be done it's got to be done and if that means you don't get home till midnight yeah. or two or three something's promised you know for us at least we deliver on those promises yeah yeah that's a big thing 
<laughs> Definitely. Definitely. One thing I'll, I'll notice about, like, I always get, uh, it's so interesting to me about, no, like, I've met several like what I would call phenomenal mechanics and boat workers over the years. You're definitely one of them, but you guys have like this, like, it's almost like if something's really broken, you almost get excited. <laughs> yeah. It's like you get like some type of rush out of like trying to fix something, you know, and figuring it out, you know, I think, I think there's some truth to that. I think, um, you know, in the world of repairs, everything tends to be somewhat repetitive. You see the kind of the same failures over and over, uh, people, uh, don't put a fuel stabilizer in and so when you see this motor present these certain issues you pretty much you know what's going know on. what's going on and so uh, as crazy as it is like what you're saying is true if we get one of those really good head scratchers mm-hmm. it's like you know challenge on let's yeah let's, let's, let's see, see what what's we going can on do. yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's uh and now in the in the the way of the world with the outboards everything has moved towards a, a digital engine a fly-by-wire controlled motor so when I first went to uh, outboard school, you know, none of that. It doesn't stuff, really pertain. It didn't exist, and it's it's so outdated. Um, everything that's going on now is a lot more like a car engine, but it's just turned up right. But there, there's sensors. There's, uh, there's a lot of components that have to uh, read within certain parameters. And so when any of that gets out of whack that's when you end up with these weird alarms or something and those are some of those head scratchers that you yeah, end up with yeah yeah definitely is but it's <laughs> a it's a ever uh, lasting learning curve because things right are about, constantly changing yeah right <laughs> about the time you think okay i've got this school finished with this company uh and i understand how they work they come out with a new product and now everything that was that you knew is kind of maybe not out the door but maybe only half of it yeah. uh, pertains to the new stuff yeah, it's it's we say it all the time in, in Venice because it's like I don't know every five or ten years you know new motors take place. Yep. You know, not just little changes from year to year, big change. Big change. Yeah. You know, a whole different engine or whatever, and you gotta basically like starting all the way over again. <laughs> it is. It is. Uh, Mercury just uh, we're well. I guess I should back up and say that we're a Blue Wave deal. Blue Wave dealer, Bulls Bay dealer, Havoc dealer, and then we're Suzuki and Mercury. Mm-hmm. And Mercury is uh, a prime example of that with the recent motor they came out yeah, with. Yeah, totally different. Man. Being raved on, it's a really good engine. Um, really impressed with the performance of it, but it is completely different than the Verado and and yeah. its predecessors, Optimaxes and everything else. I'm sure it's for the better, right? <laughs> it is definitely. Uh, every time they make a change, generally now, uh, it is for you know better uh, horsepower. A lighter motor, better fuel consumption, all yeah. those are the things that, yeah. that drive that business to change. Yeah. I mean, I, I can tell one thing from, like, the Mercury's that they changed was, like, you know, you used to see a ton of uh, salt water getting in those motors from the, the original, like, the, the old the older Verado cowlings. You'd see, I mean, the, the, the motor would just be drenched in salt, but the now exposure. the new ones... They don't have all that salt when you take off the cowling. Right. I think that's huge, you know. Just a lot that better seals. Design, yeah. and, and also the way, and <coughs> most outboard companies are doing this. Uh, I know Suzuki and Mercury especially, they've changed the uh, where the air comes in the engine so that they can seal things up better. And so a lot of them are now drawing air, say, out of the top rear of the cow versus the, uh, front, of the front of it. And yeah. so they might bring an air duct that you don't even see inside the cowlin, but all of that is to make for a, a better intake to stop that exposure yeah. to salt water. 
Because as we all know, salt water is uh, <laughs> it is the common enemy with all things, you know. Oh yeah, it's, without it's a doubt, tough. anything on the boat is <laughs> anything, and, and take it to pieces. In the environments that we live in here on the coast and in Venice, you know, we have these the sea fog type stuff. It's salty. I mean, yeah, I yeah. make a joke with people all the time and tell them that uh, down at my house uh, or anywhere along the water. Uh, a solo cup will rust, and I, I truly believe that. I mean, it's just crazy. <laughs> yeah, you know? it is. This stuff eats it up. It does. It really does. Man. So, um, you guys are also, like, you guys got that going on, but what, what, the Magnolia Key Oysters, you guys are getting into the oyster game too, huh? We are. We are. Uh, I have a partner in that, Terry Boyd. Um, <clears throat> and it's, uh, <clears throat> it's something that started out as something I was just, had some interest in and uh, the more i looked into it the more i wanted to be a part of it and do it it's there it's a business opportunity but besides that the uh a lot of people know some people don't the the oysters are as a whole are in pretty bad shape all yeah. of our bottom reefs mm-hmm. from bonnie Carey spillway to uh last season we had an extraordinary amount of rain uh that caused the salinities to be really low and so oysters are a very big part of our ecosystem. Uh, an adult oyster feeds or filters about 55 gallons of water per day per oyster, per animal. Holy so uh, That's a lot of water. And when I say filters, I mean it clears it. It clears everything out. Um, so they're, they're a really big role to the balance of the ecosystem of the areas that we live in. Those Water you know, quality brackish, is huge. It's, it's super big. And so the oysters that we grow are off bottom. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's farming. It's new to Mississippi just in the last few years, but it is a um, it's a sector that I believe that you're going to see start to become bigger because of not only the the business opportunities for other farmers, but for everything that is good to come out of that. The more farmers you can line up, uh, our farm is out by Deer Island. And then we have a nursery uh, operation in Graveline Bayou uh, at my house where we actually start them off young, and then we move them to Deer Island. But the more of those guys that so we So you guys get, get them as a seed, like very small? We do get some as seeds, but we actually this year did our first what they call oyster setting mm. uh, where we buy, <coughs> we get larvae that are, you know, from the, the egg and the semen of, of the, or the sperm of the oyster and they make a larvae just like a mosquito larvae swimming around in a bucket, and we take a ground oyster shell that's ground to specifically a size that only one oyster larvae can stick to it, and that's how you end up with all the single oysters rather than the mm-hmm. clumps in the farming world. And so we, we're doing that at uh, you know at the nursery operation at my house, and uh, it's it's really interesting. Spend a lot wow. of time under a microscope. So you're actually doing the whole like the the actual breeding of these oysters in a sense. We, yes we will be uh permitted hopefully by the end of this year to actually do all of the breeding right now we're still having to get the larvae from the university mm-hmm. of southern mississippi and from uh, auburn shellfish lab because we're not quite set up for the the state's not quite ready to issue permits for that but it's in the process for this year wow and uh once we set those they start building shell and um they get they grow fairly prolifically uh as when they're in the warmer months then we move them out to the farm and they do their thing so even though eventually these are going to be harvested and consumed uh they did their time out at the farm which is 
been great for you know right. for the water quality and the well, more people we can get doing that the more oysters are out there the better our water will so be so how how long do you guys raise them before you bring them out to um the the farms which are all right off of deer island they are they are they're areas that we lease from the state of mississippi they're designated we have three acres out there and, and do uh, you guys farm them or do you have other farmers no we farm them. oh we, you guys we do, do. you yep. guys go out there and do the whole thing huh? we do we wow. go out and uh you know this past week we actually went out thursday morning terry and i did with the help of another guy matt who helps us some and uh we harvested four thousand twenty five oysters and some of those were pre-sold, but by the end of the day Friday, they were gone. You know, it's uh, wow. They're very popular. They have a really nice salty. I tried uh, one yesterday, man. They're buttery phenomenal. flavor. They're you guys really don't good. have any more. We do. You I do? mean, we don't have any harvested right now, but uh, we're harvesting weekly. Weekly. So yeah. you guys have it set up to where you can harvest consistently. We do. We do. Uh, through and the that summer, will happen throughout the entire year. It will through the summer months. We harvest a oyster called a triploid which does not sexually reproduce, so it doesn't get poor like a regular oyster does in the summer. In the summertime, a regular diploid oyster starts uh, kind of getting a little, doesn't have the fat because mm -hmm. they're putting all their efforts into reproduction. The triploid is a uh, oyster that doesn't reproduce, and so we can harvest those in the summer. But the only challenge in the summertime is they have what's called a time temperature matrix that you have to follow by state law. And basically, from the time you pull the first oyster out of the water, uh, it, you have an allotted amount of time to get it into refrigeration and get it cooled down. And th this past month was like, I think it's 18 hours or something in January. And then as you move to August, I think it gets all the way like, say, two hours. So mm -hmm. it gets very challenging to get any type of numbers of oysters into the boat, yeah. situated, and then into refrigeration within two hours. Yeah, it's quick, quick. So we'll we'll have some all year, but the, our biggest harvest months will definitely be the between months. October and March every yeah, year. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, it's, and it's something that uh, I just really enjoy <laughs> doing. Um, have you been tried fishing around y'all's farms at all? Yeah, uh, it's pretty funny. The uh, We have to go out there and do maintenance on the equipment that gets piled up with barnacles, and so we'll be scraping barnacles out there, and, man, the sheephead are just – they everywhere, come in from huh? everywhere. Yeah. Really? <laughs> uh, oddly – you would think that that would be like a triple tail mecca. Yeah, I would all these so, floating man. baskets. Uh, we just don't see hardly any on there. Every now and then we see one. It might catch up to it. I, th I think it still might be kind of new. Could know? be, could be. It's uh, but I've always had a passion for triple tail, and I thought that would be something to be really neat. I'll keep a rod in the boat because surely we're going to run on some. Just really don't see them that much. Yeah, maybe it's the area. I don't know. I don't know. I, you know, I thought the same thing because I, I was looking into doing the oyster thing. Just the same, the, th the thing that you're doing right now, you know, I wanted to go out and do the whole thing. I didn't see a, a ton of profit there, and I thought it was a ton of work. So <laughs> didn't, it's, I just decided to keep fishing. Definitely not a definitely not a get-rich-overnight thing at all. Uh, there's definitely, It's definitely a growing thing. It is, it is, and it's, so. it's important. Uh, and there, there's definitely, uh, you know, I, good money I'll, to be made, but it you're going to work for it. It's yeah. not easy. I, I mean, I like what you're saying about the water quality thing because, I mean, what else is supposed to clean up our water? <laughs> Man, I, I mean, you know, at the end of the day, uh, the water is the way it is today because of us mostly. And uh, so by us, I mean whatever the things that we as humans have done to it, put into it, and it's interesting, you know, and I know some things are are just a series of time in, in the world mm -hmm. where things change, yeah. uh, heat, cooling, that kind of thing. But it's very uh, – one thing that I guess I think about 
with all this is my granddad was from Meridian. One of them was. And he used to come down to Gaucher and stay at the fish camps at the very end of Ladner Road uh, during the summer months. He would come down and fish and enjoy himself. And there was pictures of him holding tarpon up that they caught off of a pier at the end of Ladner Road. And so, <laughs> you know, he's he, – I think he would have been – maybe 105 or something this year if he was still alive or something like that. But uh, let's just say it was, you know, 80 years ago or 70 yeah. years ago. It's crazy to think that, you know, my granddad would drive down here and catch tarpon off of a pier at the end of Ladner Road. You know, today there's definitely – there might be some juveniles, but there's yeah. definitely <laughs> there's not definitely any big not tarpon big at the tarpon. end of Ladner Road, <laughs> you know. Uh, so I'm hoping that – my my hopes, uh, besides the business venture of it, is that we can be a part of the solution, uh, making this ecosystem making better. the ecosystem better, making uh, getting some of the water quality cleared up, and uh, you know it's always nice to try to be part of the solution rather than be part of the problem. Yeah, yeah, it definitely is, yeah. man. That's awesome. It's really cool. Was there uh, any kind of real thing that made you interested in doing the oysters, or was it just a kind of like a something you just happened upon i think it's probably you know all through high school i think or junior high specifically i think i always wanted to be a marine biologist but yeah. i was much like you raised on the water um fishing diving it just seemed like the natural thing for me until i got to uh i remember having a, a meeting with a counselor somewhere along the way and they show you those charts of this is what these people make. Firemen make yeah, this and this yeah, and this. Yeah. And I just remember looking at the marine biologist thing thinking, I don't know if that's going to work out for me. <laughs> now, I know a lot of them make a lot of money, but they have to start and build their way up. And, and Yeah. Uh, so I guess I kind of maybe am falling back. Back into what you into really what I really wanted. liked and uh, what I probably had more of a passion for. Um, and so I've been really fortunate uh, with – specifically Gulf Coast Research Lab, um, we have been very fortunate that they have really been an open book to us. Yeah. They've I did a podcast with Angelos Apetos. Yeah. You know Angelos? I do know Angelos. And know uh, he, well. he told, you know, he's he's gave me a ton of information on the technology that they're developing for fish farms, you yes. know, and as, as well as the oyster stuff as well. And uh, super interesting. I mean, it the is. idea that we can, you know, farm these fish instead of going and catching our natural fish and sending them all over the world is yep. a, a better concept than what we're doing right now. <laughs> I think aquaculture as a whole, not just oysters, but as a whole, will look a lot different in 50 years. Absolutely. I think it'll be a, a like a really a mainstay of life. You yeah. Know? I um, hope so, man. I mean, I, I was just talking with uh, – uh, uh, Professor uh, Dry Marcus Drymon on my podcast, and um, one of the things I really think that we can all agree on is that artificial reefs, your oysters, things like that, they really do make more fish. They do, and we got to figure out. I, I really think we got to figure out ways to start putting a lot of money into making more reefs that really go from top to bottom. Because it's to me, it's huge that those oysters are on top of the water because there's not there's not a lot of the only structure that we have that sticks all the way out of the water are oil rigs <clears throat> and there's t i mean all the bait and everything that's that's so crucial to have that top layer we put a lot of stuff on the bottom but from having that structure from top to bottom i think it's huge and i do think in the future 
we're going to see, you know, some sort of, I, I mean, imagine if you could keep those, you know, you could have oyster farm thing on the top and then down below that goes all the way to the bottom and that stuff's all for the, the fish, you know, I mean, there's, Absolutely. there's all, all types of artificial reefs and things that we can do, I think, to, to help clear up the water. You know? I do too. <laughs> and and the, the ecosystem that is created by uh, oil platform offshore, Yeah. Uh, a lot of people only that don't know that have not dove like you have like i have they don't they see it on top and they think it's an oil field you know whatever but when you put a mask on you put a scuba tank on you get overboard it's it's a complete ecosystem it is you know from top it wouldn't be there if there was no it's it would it would be gone and unfortunately a lot of those rigs have been they're taking them up every day gone and uh i think it would be really beneficial to uh like you said create something that would be sustainable long term yeah, man, we, we got so much money in fishing, if you think about it. Like, all the boats and stuff and everything that we're selling. And we're not, I really don't feel like we're putting enough efforts into making, you know, reefs and things like you're doing. That Things that could actually be profitable. They don't necessarily have to be, you know, something we said. But, I mean, I, I think a lot of it is, is the rules being changed. I mean, like, who, I, I think you could find rich people that would want to build their own camp out there over the water. Wouldn't yeah. that be cool? That would be cool. <laughs> you could put your own boat lift and just drop it down, fly your helicopter out there. I mean, if there's anybody rich out there who wants to do it, you should figure it out. <laughs> yeah. Let us know. We'll, we'll come stay with you. I guess it'd probably be hard to uh, obtain some insurance on something like that, but if you're rich. Yeah. Enough, I mean, I'm I just saying Jeff Bezos or, like, people that have these gazillion acres of hunting land. Yep. I mean, you could go from your hunting land to your freaking oil platform. <laughs> uh, I think I saw in an article not too long ago, somebody had took a platform somewhere maybe off of Yeah, the they Atlantic. have a couple, and it's called the frying pan off okay. of South Carolina. I read something yeah. about that. They said they're South Carolina, North fly Carolina. Fly in on a helicopter, and they stay, yeah. and it's all turned into like a really elaborate. Yeah, and they nice should do it off of like off of Louisiana. I mean, I, you could I, catch way more fish. Of course, there <laughs> is one off of Louisiana. Uh down uh not completely fit the bill that we're talking about but the uh, islander jackup rig yeah the jackup rig that's, that's what i mean yeah. stuff like that in the right if you put i just think if you put those types of things in the right locations i mean they would make more fish you could show up you could i don't know there's and you could make them bigger like you know these these rigs are really constructed for oil you know what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. If you constructed them strictly for fish, I mean, I, I think they would be different, you know, and probably better. <laughs> I think so, too. And, and uh, you know, like you said, it it helps uh, promote people that are buying the boats and that want to go fishing. All of that yeah. is, a, is a, I guess, an, an means to the, to the end. They're able to go out. If we have more things for people to go fish, like yeah. when I was a kid um, – we go just south of Petty Boy, and there was rigs everywhere. Yeah. You know, they were everywhere. And uh, now you leave south of Petty Boy, and you see the triple rig, I guess, is still there. And you'll run miles and miles and miles before you even see another platform. Yeah. And it's unfortunate because that was one of my favorite things to do. We didn't always uh, do scuba. We'd bring bottles with us, but we'd just do a lot of free diving and spear fishing on the platforms as yeah. young, you know, teenagers shoot plenty of stuff plenty of stuff had you know some of the best times of my (laughs) life doing that so without a doubt i always thought you know like what if they could put uh top to bottom fads all around horn island yeah that would that would change it because like it's it's really like they put these rigs in places that are good for oil they don't necessarily put them in places that are like really good for the fish right or to create habitat 
Yeah. That's, yeah. I think, and it's and I think the big diff the the hardest thing to come to agreement on is that a lot of biologists out there still think that uh, reefs don't make more fish. A lot of them do, you know, but a lot of them think that they just attract fish, and it's not necessarily that they're making more fish. Right. But if we could ever come to agreement that they are making more fish, and that this is better for the ecosystem and for humans entirely, yeah. you know. Absolutely. <laughs> Absolutely. Well, man, tell us, uh, tell us some more about like your your fiberglass work. Like I've I've talked, you know, to boat manufacturers over the years and stuff, and your name, y'all's name, always comes up. I mean, you guys have. I mean, is there a boat out there you guys haven't done some fiberglass work on? <laughs> Probably not many. Probably not many. Um, <laughs> and sometimes it's a real simple, you know, uh oh, boo boo fix. Uh, somebody hit something, did something. Sometimes uh, we have to really apply some uh, pretty good engineering to the repairs to make sure that uh, that they're done and they'll hold up. And, you know, it's it's actually a common thing in the boating world with dealing with customers over the years that's bought other brand boats. Say they have a, a problem with the boat. Uh, the one thing that you'll hear people say, well, I want it to go back to the factory. Well, that's not always the best plan. Uh, the factories are really good at building boats, not so much at repairing boats. We, uh, we, our specialty is repairing boats. So if you've got a boat, comes off the trailer, slams into a piling of a bridge and smashes the front of it up, the odds are most factories uh, are not going to have maybe one person working in the factory out of two or 300 that could even be capable of doing that repair. And But those are things that we've specialized in over the years. And we've stayed at... Um, stayed in touch with all the new technologies by attending uh, like the IBEX seminars which is the International Boat Builders Exhibition um, and that's where we've always learned these new technologies and you have to stay up just much like the mechanic side mm-hmm. you have to stay up with how these manufacturers are building boats because if you're going to repair a boat and you want to repair it back to a uh, you know an original standard you have to know how they're constructed Mm-hmm. And you have to know how to get them back together using those same type of uh, products that they're built with and then that they stay repaired. We we very seldom have anything uh, come back for, you know, something that didn't go right. It does happen sometimes, but right, right. very, very little. <laughs> uh, and we just really like to make sure that it's right. Yeah. I, love, I love nothing more than when a customer drops a boat off. Because you know, face it, we all love our boats, mm-hmm. and uh, they get nervous. They're you know they're they're kind of like our our third child, you know, and mm-hmm. uh, people bring them in and they're just devastated because they've had this accident or because they, you know, whether it's small, minor, or whether it's major, you can just see it on their face. They have a really long face, and they're like, oh man, you know. And then when they pick them up and you pull them out, and they just they light up because they can't find where that damage was on a, you know, <laughs> a, a brand new. It looks brand new again, and it's uh, that's always very rewarding. Yeah, it's one of the me. amazing things about fiberglass to me is like what you're able to do. I mean, I've seen some of you guys' repairs, and it's you can't tell. I mean, it's 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 that's all about you know, in the in the world of fiberglass, you have kind of a construction side, which is going to be like your people that build tanks and pipe and all that. What we do is really a lot more of an art. It's uh, you have to understand the engineering behind it, but also it is truly art. We we tint those colors most of the time by eye. We don't have a machine that goes in and scans it like Lowe's wow. does. <laughs> uh, we we look at a color and we you might see yellow. We see yellow oxide, black, uh, purple, and red to make that color. 
Wow. And we do it by eye, a drop at a time until it's like dialed in perfect. And that's what makes that repair. And it's vanish. crazy too because it's got to be like a shade off because whenever it dries, it'll be a different color. And some colors are worse about that than others. It's mm-hmm. not quite as bad as paint is. But it is, that is a thing. And so sometimes to repair a spot and know that you got the color right, you can't just put it up there wet and go, okay, that looks good. You actually have to catalyze it, spray it, sand it, and polish it to compare it to the original color of the boat because of what you're talking about, that, that cured uh, yeah, color that change. cured color change. So yeah. sometimes we might take a little spot that's the size of a quarter. We might be charging, say, $200 to fix that spot. We actually might repair that spot 10, 12, 15 times before we actually are completely happy with that color. Then we do a final spray on it, blend it in, and everything goes away. But there's no way to know that you got that color right without doing that. Without doing the whole process right. first. And a lot of people don't realize that. And a lot of people think gel coats this. And it's oxidized, too. So, it, like, it's not like times. you can just pull the color out of out of the thing out of a factory can you yeah, can't you yeah, can't that do doesn't that. apply very often unless it's a really new boat or something that's been kept indoors forever wow. with low hours <laughs> uh but it's a lot of people think that uh gel coat is something that you spray on like a paint you walk away from it and that's you know when you spray gel coat gel coat was made originally to spray into a mold it's just a means for a finish mm-hmm. to for the fiberglass so when you have a spot that you've repaired uh, and you spray gel coat o- over it, it comes out looking like bed liner. That's about my best description for it. Mm. You spray it. Uh, now, they have additives that you can add to it to make it lay down smoother. But if you do that, you're also reducing the amount of gel coat you put on the repair. So I like to use uh, gel coat with just minimal stuff in it. We put it on, and then once that's on, you have to sand that with 180, 320, 600, 1,000, 2,000, then buff it. And so there's a lot that goes into that little gel coat repair. (laughs) It's just not something you can spray up there and walk away from. There's a ton of it, man. There is. There's so much to that stuff. I've always, I don't know, I'd I'd like to have taken the time to learn that stuff at some point. I probably should still. Well, (laughs) maybe whenever, uh, when you maybe one of these winters I should, I should stop in and do it. And I'll be glad to show you. (laughs) Be glad to show you. I've taught a lot of people over the years. Yeah. My, my, my younger brother's working on a sailboat. He said he went in there and and talked to, I think it was you or Kale. I can't remember. Yeah. He talked to both of us. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, He's, he's knee deep in it right now. Yeah. (laughs) And so that's another thing that's kind of funny. We sell, you know, some materials to people when they need them and they get started on a project. And usually, um, of course, nowadays you got YouTube. You know, mm-hmm. whenever I first learned this trade, there was no YouTube. Golly, I that so, was crazy. You yeah, really had to pick at it. I had to, you know, I had to try uh, and fail until I succeeded. And um, eventually I was able to get myself into things like Ibex and I was able to learn uh, or fill in some of the blanks of things that I didn't know. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and, again, it's ever-evolving too. So what I know this year – uh, even though it may be a good base, there'll be new technology next year that we have to be up on. Yeah, you gotta it's, it's <laughs> throw changing. everything away and yep. <laughs> learn it again. Exactly. And so, um, I, I mean, this is all great stuff. But just to switch gears a little bit, what, what's like one of your like? I know that you know as a as a charter captain, I have like preferred clients, maybe or preferred customers or the way that some of them do certain things. Is there anything that you'd say that like is your preferred customer 
um, as far as like buying a boat or getting something done on a boat or anything like that? Like, what's something that people could listen to to know like how to be a better customer <laughs> to somebody like you? Because to be honest, like for me, like I I want to have the best relationship possible with somebody like you because you're a dying breed, Some, somebody that knows how to do all this stuff on a boat and stuff. I mean, it's like you guys are becoming more and more needed. So like, how can uh, customers better, you know? do, do uh, serve you guys well i think for us at farland's marine uh probably one of the uh most important things is to realize that you know yes we are there to make a living yes we're there to provide for our families but we are not there to rip you off we yeah. want we want to save you money yeah we want to give you options uh and and try to come up with the best plan that uh, you can afford whether it's buying a boat fixing a boat fixing the engine uh, and when we tell you that something's needed it's because it's needed right so don't think that it's, it's don't not, second guess what you're trying to right, tell them, right right we're not going to tell you we're not just stabbing out there and hoping you're you're you know you're biting the hook yeah. it's uh if we make a recommendation to you it's because it needs to be done and so like from the engine side one of the things that is i've watched evolve a lot of people will go, you know what, I do my own service. And that's good. We support you. If mm-hmm. you want to do that, we will we will print you documents. We will get you uh, – we will answer questions. We will sell you the things that you need to do it. But we try to encourage you to do it correctly because a lot of people think a service is pulling the oil plug, draining mm-hmm. the oil, putting oil back in the top of it, and out the door you go, changing the oil filter. Uh, yeah. That is the, actually the probably the smallest part of a service. Yeah. Um, the service, uh, say a hundred hour service, we have a a, a one page uh, checkoff list that we do on every service, and it's everything from uh, you know checking over things that could have possibly migrated loose. We check your internal anodes. A lot of people don't know that these outboards have zincs, just like they do under the trim units. Mm-hmm. They have zincs that are uh, in specific locations on the engine where they're inside the internal waterways that cool the engine if those uh do their job they catch that that corrosion they they break down they go away if those are not replaced as they're supposed to be it starts eating inside of your engine electrolysis so um a lot of people don't even know those are there so what happens is we get a person in that says, you know what, I've had this motor. It's been a great motor. I hadn't had to do a thing to it in five years. <laughs> well, that's the one we're scared of <laughs> because lower unit's not been off. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, anodes have not been checked. Yeah. Uh, that's the one that actually cost us a lot of times money because if we say a service costs X dollars and you bring me one that's been non-service for five years, probably something's going to be stuck. You know, yeah. probably a bolt's going to break. Yeah. So those are the ones that we hate to see the most. <laughs> I mean, it really is. Now, if you bought one and you're ready to get on a program or regiment to make that motor be the best it can be, we're all for it. But uh, to to try to extend those times, when they say when we say a water pump should be changed every three years, we're not doing it to get your money. We're doing it because we want you to have a good boating experience yeah. where that engine's going to cool. Every, it's going to do everything it's going to supposed gonna to do, <laughs> and everything's going to work for you. Yeah. Um, we all know there's times that you things happen. Uh, you've had quite a few of them uh, <laughs> over the years in Venice, but 
Um, anytime you call me, I'm always trying to help you find a solution yeah. or either tell you, hey, I know you got to drive it up to me, but if you'll get it to me, we'll have you ready tomorrow. Yeah, that's another question I was going to ask. What's the best way for like clients if you do have a problem? Is the best way to call your front office? I know like a lot of your clients over the years probably have your direct number, but is that not – I mean, I'm I'm sure. I mean, like you, like whenever I go up there, like you were swamped, man. You were running around, like you were trying Always. to fix everything, you Always. know. And yeah. you're looking over what everybody else is doing. So, like, what's the best way? Is it to call the front office there and talk to Angela and and, and or Rick and Rick or yeah. Rick? Or actually, we even have a new program that uh, we just recently got. It's, really? it's called Connect, mm-hmm. and it, what it does, it allows you to text our store number mm-hmm. and. That text comes through, and we have either myself or Kel or Lisa. We see those texts. Even though it's going to our landline, we see that text, and then we are able to basically tag within our company the people that need to see that text, and it goes to them. So if it involves just service, I would say normally you would talk to Rick. But if you text that number and say, hey, I need this or need that, it's going to get to the appropriate person. So it's just another option. Sometimes people don't have time That's, to have I a full conversation. I could see that be very uh, beneficial for you guys' business because, like, depending on what you want, you really do have to talk to different people up there. Like, if you're, like, wanting something very specific about fiberglass, I would think that people would go to you Correct. normally about that. But if you're looking to buy a boat or a boat that's on order, you need to talk to Kel. That's and if exactly. you're talking to, you know, service, you got to talk to Rick. So. That's exactly right. We all have different hats. Yeah. Um, I do have a closet of every hat there, <laughs> and sometimes I stack them on top of each other and kind of do it all. But uh, but we have a really good group of people that yeah. surround us, and they are every bit as much responsible for Furlan's being a success uh, as I am or my wife is uh, or Kel. We just have a really good group of people. Everybody has a designated job, yeah. and we, we don't – it's not a that's not my job type thing, but – that is what they were hired to do and so yeah. angela's gonna be better at looking up parts for you than i am because yeah. that's what she does that's what she day. does right rick's gonna be better at dealing with the service stuff because that's what he's been doing for over 30 years yeah uh stacy uh and the other mechanics in the back specifically stacy uh, has been doing it a long time and he's gonna be he's the guy that you know, no matter what the crazy thing is that's going on, he'll figure it out. Yeah, you know? that's what I honestly I love about coming up there is you always see the same people too. Yes. So it's it makes it like you guys are one big old family up there. <laughs> we are. We believe. I mean, I, everybody's I got you, their own little purpose. It's it's a cool place. And man. we believe investing. You know, in our people, we we pay for whatever schools we can get them into because it, the more things that everybody there knows about this industry the better service that we can provide to all of our customers. And so yeah. at the end of the day, that's the that's the main yeah. objective. Well, you, you guys have built it up, you know, over the years to what it is now. You guys, over the last couple of years, few years, have been selling boats. And uh, where do you think it's going from here? Uh, I think we just keep <coughs> pushing forward, and uh, I like where we're at. I just want to – that's where I don't, I don't, I mean, you guys aren't too big now, but I mean, there is a way that you could get too big, right? <laughs> there is, yeah. I don't think, uh, I think what we want to do, we want to grow to whatever point we can grow to, to where we can always provide the same quality and service. Yeah. So if that means that we can do that uh, at five times the size we are now, then I, I, You'd I think be okay I'm okay with, with that. Yeah. But if, if we can't, efficiently do that i don't want any part of it i would assume be i would assume be able to deliver the quality and service over the the 
size of the company. Yeah. That's yeah. what makes you feel good as a person, I think. You know, yeah, like, absolutely. You know, like if, if I were to sell a trip, you know, like I don't tarpon fish a lot, but if I were to sell a tarpon trip <laughs> yeah. or something and something you can't really deliver on, but delivering is what you feel good about. Whenever you can deliver and know that you're providing the best service possible, yep. you know, that makes you feel good. Besides the money and all the, the shit, I mean, that only takes you so far, but – Right. That really feeling of knowing that in the community you're doing the best possible job. Yep. I mean, that's that's extraordinary. <laughs> Absolutely. That's, that's what you want to feel like. And I think anybody can present themselves a certain way to make a customer, whether you're talking fishing, fiberglass, boat sales, anybody can present themselves in a way that will make somebody come and try you one time. But it's how you deal with that opportunity that provides you more opportunity down the road. So the people that don't succeed are those that, that don't take care of business, the ones that don't leave that customer feeling like, hey, man, I really got what I paid for, yeah. you know, and uh, I think we always want to be the people that give you what you pay for. Yeah. And so uh, I will not in any way say we don't ever make mistakes because we've <laughs> made some, uh, but I will tell you that if we do make a mistake, uh, I will be the very first one to stand up and own that mistake <laughs> and make it right. Yeah. You know, I think it's very important. Uh, and especially in a time where, you know, we all know that small businesses are are the backbone of this country. Mm-hmm. And we're in a time now where companies are buying companies. And That's so, crazy, man. you know, you got one company that owns these other five companies. And so you think you're dealing with a company that might actually be a local company. But technically, you're, uh, really, not. you're really not. You're mm-hmm. dealing with a corporate-owned company. And so the guy that's running that company may or may not have the final say where the final say is at our business you know so i don't think that you'll find in those corporate businesses you'll find the type of true passion and desire like you have like to really serve your customers because i don't think that that doesn't come from being a money hungry individual no that that comes from your passion of wanting to fix things pride passion provide a, a service and a, and a you know a purpose for your community and like i don't think i don't know it's it's scary seeing all these big co- uh you know these smaller companies getting bought up by you know big corporations it's because i couldn't i couldn't imagine them buying up like something like you guys's business and, and just expecting it to run the way that you guys yeah. run it it's impossible it is impossible it's <laughs> impossible you can put good people in but you can't you know it's very rare that you find people that are so passionate about what they do that uh, that they would do anything to make it right, and they're not the owner or they don't they're not vested like like we are. We have a lot of family in our business, but we also have a lot of people that have practically become family. Mm-hmm. Uh, I mean, that's honestly how we view our employees as, as an extension family, of yeah. our family. Yeah. I know. I know. Right now, what's going on with. Rick and his personal life. I know what's <laughs> going on with Stacy and his kid. I know what's going on, you know, with uh, Jamie, our rigger, and, and his life. And so, you know, it's not that I'm nosy, but I'm I'm there and I care. And, yeah, I think uh, it, try to help them. That's out. your tribe, man. That's like yeah. That's what. <laughs> that's it. That's I it. You, know, you gotta know. Right. You gotta know it. Whatever. What's going on with everybody? I think it's it's part of uh part of how we got here and how we're gonna keep going. <laughs> yeah, I agree completely. You gotta have those people close to you that care about you. You know. And the, and and that's you know I I listened to a podcast one time with the uh, the owner or the CEO of Whole Foods, and he you know Whole Foods I don't know if you ever go into Whole Foods but they have like whenever you walk in like 
it's not like you can tell these people have been working here a long time and they really care and he the the ceo always said you have to give people two things you got to give them a sense of purpose and a sense of community like mm-hmm. people that you know and then the purpose there and you got yeah. you're really good at making that over there at, at furlands you well, really are i appreciate that i've never heard it put that way but that really makes sense and yeah. uh and i think there's a lot of truth and value in that statement yeah, yeah it is i see it myself all the time like you you see you see people working like these lower lower paying jobs and things not 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 talking about what you guys do but different things and it makes you wonder like why are they there but then you start to notice that oh they have a a community there people that they like to be around that's Mm -hmm. why they've been working at this you know same job for so long you know absolutely yeah people don't really i mean you don't even realize it whenever you're in it either (laughs) you know you don't really realize how important yeah your job is to your mental health people worrying about you and you worrying about them absolutely i agree (laughs) completely but, yeah, so I think, you know, at the end of the day, as far as your question goes, um, you know, if, we, if we're telling you to do something, it's because we have seen what happens if you don't do that. Yeah. And <laughs> and that and the mechanical side. And in the fiberglass world. So, so what you're saying, I feel like what you're saying mostly about that question in particular is that you want a client that trusts you. That's correct. That trusts your judgment. That's right. And I don't, I don't expect for them to just give it to me. I don't yeah. mind earning it. But give me the opportunity to earn it. Don't yeah. assume that we're, you know, because sometimes people come in for something they think is going to be minor, and it turns into something big. And it's there's nothing I hate worse than that phone call. You yeah, know, yeah. I hate to call. Somebody you hate to tell them it's like, oh gosh, it's kind of <laughs> like calling somebody and telling them you got to come and identify the loved one. You know, I mean, I just hate to. So somebody comes in, they got a little miss in their engine. Next thing you know, it goes through the service department. They look at it and they're like, hey, this guy's got a blown motor, the pistons whatever hanging out of it uh rings are broke and man i hate making that phone call i really do i mean it's just i hate it because you know i put myself in other people's shoes and i think i think that at the, you have to be able to do that when you're in business uh whatever any the business, business is i do it all the time i think you have to wear the shoes of, of your customer so that you know you know so that you can provide what it is that they expect and also see things from uh how they view it and yeah. that way you can be compassionate about whatever it is that you're doing uh, yeah. to, to, to be the best you can and get your message across. Uh, but but I do hate making those. But, yeah, I, I just, we just need somebody to trust I hope us. This, I, I feel like this podcast could help a lot with that and the trust because, like, people can really know, like, hearing a long conversation like this, they kind of get a sense for more of who you are. I feel yeah. like, you know, you don't always get to have these long conversations. I mean, you're no, <laughs> bouncing off the walls. Bouncing everywhere. off the walls in there. So yeah, I, I hope I hope it can help you in that way, you know. To, just uh, I know what that's like as far as being a guide because – um, being a guide, like, especially when I was first getting started, the, the, the client, you know, you're a young guy, you got a nice boat, whatever. They don't really know who you are. It's a much different thing than them getting on the boat with, you know, Billy Wells or Kevin Beach or somebody that's been a guide for 20 years and they were personally recommended by their, you know, bestest of whoever they have. Right. And, uh, it's a different thing. Cause you're like trying to like, you know, prove yourself because yeah. <laughs> they don't fully trust yeah. who they're in the hands with but it's a it's a much different thing whenever you've had a client come back over the years and they know who you are or they've seen you or they were recommended by somebody that you have taken over the years you know it's a uh the level of trust there from the client to the the person that's providing the service is like it's really is huge <laughs> and, and you know i think it's probably you could probably would agree and relate to this the the person that that really uh says hey 
do what my boat needs to be done. Whatever it is, just take care of it and let me know. Uh, I hate to say that I would do more for that person, but in a way, you know, because you appreciate them being that way, um, I will go above and beyond for that person and probably even do something and not charge them for something that I may normally charge for. Yeah, just because they're fully trusted. Just because trusted. They're, they all, they're, they're loyal to us. Mm-hmm. They drop it off. They trust us. And uh, and that's just kind of the way it is, you know. But uh, but back to what you were saying, too, about, you know, earning that trust and and then you being a, a young guy like in Venice and coming from Gautier going down to Venice. I mean, you've killed it down there. You showed <laughs> up and said, hey, I'm here, boys, and I'm not going anywhere. Yeah. <laughs> and I, that's awesome. Congratulations on that, oh, by man, the way. Y'all, y'all have helped me a ton, man, and it's it's been a – it's been a really fun ride, man. I I love it. And uh, don't you think that twenty six is? I mean, what I do, do you think about the twenty six? It's a it's a great boat. It falls uh, right between that twenty four and twenty eight. And so what I why I really think it checks all the boxes for you is because uh, you know when you first I think got to Venice, you were doing a lot more offshore stuff, and you mm-hmm. were doing I was a deckhand offshore initially, right. yeah. and uh, and then you're as you got your own thing going uh, with the inshore stuff. Um, I know, you know, inshore doesn't necessarily mean smooth when you're talking Venice. Uh, <laughs> big bay systems and stuff. Big bay rough. systems, hell, uh, even the river. <clears throat> yeah, you know, the, the river last, will get rough, too. The last time I was down there last year delivering that 28 when I saw you at the mm-hmm. uh, restaurant, Yeah. I mean, we went and took a ride. Uh, I was delivering a 28 Blue Wave to a customer down there, um, Mark Rowland, and he wanted me to take him out and show him you know how to use the boat and so we got out in the main river and man i'm telling you it was three foot in the river it was blowing the water was rolling <laughs> out and uh yeah so it's it gets bad yeah i really think does. that 26 has a lot more even though it's it's built like an inshore boat as far as uh, the the decks and the the way it's set up it has that that right amount of of uh v and and big boat personality that you can do yeah. you can poke out there and do those things a little more comfortably yeah it seems like the the hole is takes after the 28 more than the 24 the running surface bit. is almost identical really it really is so you're getting that ride on, on that running surface of the 28 but you're getting that the the 26 length and you're getting that uh bay boat type yeah. setup where you're yeah, not because i got the, the pure water. bay yeah right like, you know, in your 24 Pure Bay, I mean, you are uh, you can sit on the gunnel, stick your arm in the water. You can do that on 28. You can't do that. 26, you can. Yeah. You have to reach a little further than 24. Yeah. <laughs> but uh, I think it's a good multi-purpose boat. Yeah. Uh, the boat handles the rough water really well. It's a step toll. So you, yeah. you're going to have a, a big advantage there that you didn't have before at the 24. Because when you get up in that 40-mile-an-hour range where that, that those steps actually create that vacuum and pull that air in under the hull, uh, it's pretty neat. You can get the boat up to about 40, uh, take your hands off the steering wheel, take your hands off the controls, and as you're running straight, it, you'll actually, just for a minute, and it'll pick up RPMs, and you'll bump up where you were running 40. Now you're running 44 miles an hour. Wow. And and then you actually will see that fuel consumption get better also. And all that happens without touching the controls because it actually gets that air underneath the, uh, the hull. I kind of explain it to people uh, like an air hockey table. Everybody's played air hockey at some point, bowling alley, something. And whenever you've got those quarters in that machine, that, that disc just flies around like it's just gliding, mm-hmm. you know, on ice. And when those when the time runs out, 
but still you can bang it around but it's kind of dragging you know mm-hmm. and that's kind of never the, heard it explained like that's that, kind of the a really good way to it's, put it's it it's really how it works it's without it's, those steps you're not getting that air induction so you're not reducing the friction yeah and it's still going but when so you reduce the difference that friction, from the 24 to the 26 the 26 is stepped and the 24 is that's flat, correct right that's correct the only other step hole we have in a boat smaller than that is the 23 and the 23 is uh the blue wave 23 uh-huh blue yeah, wave 23 I, did not, I didn't know they stepped they, that one they it is stepped and it was originally called the rs1 it was kind of designated the uh lamborghini of the fleet um however they ended up discontinuing that boat and they're really? but they're making it in a 23 classic hmm. so it's uh still available but it's in a different style boat it's kind of uh hmm. brought down a little bit as far as I guess features. the main idea of a stepped hole is to run fast, uh, more efficient at higher speeds, right? That's it. That's it doesn't it. really do anything when you're, you know, below 40 miles an hour or say, you know, it, it varies by boat. But as you get to that point, there's a point with every hole where it kicks in mm-hmm. and you can feel it just like I was talking about a minute ago. So when it kicks in, you reduce drag uh, and that increases your speed and increases your fuel or decreases your fuel consumption. And uh, it's very beneficial, especially, you know, making long runs or something like that. It can add up over the course of a day. Yeah, I've been telling people all day, all weekend, that I really feel like the 26 is is, is, – you see a lot of these hybrid boats coming out. And, you know, I think that that is going to be the main consumer market for boats at some point. To have a boat that you can do whatever you want in. I do too. Have a a boat that has power poles and a trolling motor – but you can still go and catch snapper yep. or, you know, eat, I mean, a Venice tuna or swordfish or whatever it might be. You know, That's something definitely, you in. definitely happening now. Uh, when I was younger, you know, uh, all my, my dad, my uh, dad's friends, they all, you had a big boat for snapper fishing mm-hmm. and you had a small boat, you know, maybe a skiff or whatever, but that was for trout fishing. Mm-hmm. Uh, or you might even have a little aluminum boat to run the river. And yeah, nowadays, so you really need three, especially if you're a flats guy. You right. Know. And nowadays what people are, they want that one boat that will do it all. Yeah. And that 2600 definitely checks uh, all the boxes for that. And, you know, that's one thing about the Blue Waves. They're, they're not built as heavy pound-wise as a lot of other boats. But the type of construction, the way they're built, is very unique. And it's very different than just about every other boat manufacturer that's here at this show today. Yeah. Um, I feel the same. I feel the same way. I mean, I, I talked to Richard Parks down in Venice um, uh, over the fall, and he explained it to me as that it was a company built by fishermen that weren't arrogant enough not to listen to their customers. Right. Right. <laughs> yeah, so like it's, it's true. It's like if if you look at some of the blue wave forms and stuff that they have, and you see a lot of people saying something about you know the boat, they will really go and change it. They will yes. change the whole the whole thing, and they've done it time and time again, and it's made their boats better. They do it every year. Yeah. Every single year they listen, and they make those changes. And Richard uh, is nothing short of a mad scientist anyway. He was – he was uh, Richard's the guy who was always digging in, and, and uh, if I had something I needed to talk to him about, I could call a cell phone, we could talk about it, and he's just uh, – you know, they grew up doing it, him and Steven both. And, uh, yeah. I met him for the first time in Venice. Great guy. Yeah. 
Very nice guy. He was eager to talk to me, and I, I've always wanted to meet him, so it was a good conversation. And, and, <laughs> and for, you know, two guys that uh, own a, uh, a very large company, uh, very, very humble. Yeah, yeah, very, very humble. humble. I was very impressed with the yep. humble. Yeah, very, very humble. Very right. good. Very, very, the whole Parks family, good, good people. Yeah, very good people. I mean, you've met enough of these boat company owners before. You know that they're not always the, the most humble. No, there's uh, some out there that may have earned that right not to be. But yeah, you know, that is true. Maybe they. Uh, but you know, I think anybody appreciates somebody that's humble. Yeah, no doubt. Uh, rather than somebody that's just full of herself. You know? Yeah, yeah, no doubt. And we're coming up on an hour right now, um, and uh, I know you probably got to get back out there and sell some boats. But um, real quick, man, I like to ask a lot of people. I know we talked a little bit about conservation, but what more do you think that we can do as boaters, anglers, or you know anything um, to to help you know help what we're doing? Uh, I would say you know the most important part is with with it when you get people set in their ways, they have to see the light. Um, I definitely, uh, can tell you that over the years I've been part of the problem, not the solution when it comes to conservation. Uh, mm -hmm. reluctantly, I, ha I have to admit that because there's been times that I've stood in front of the boat with huge stringers of fish and how many fish can you actually, you know, yeah. and I, I never wasted anything, but I believe that it's all about, uh, teaching the younger people that uh you know I, speckled truth does a great job with what they do absolutely and, uh, i love their saying of take what you need and and let go of the rest you know and uh, that may not be exactly how they say it but uh, yeah, paraphrasing is, it, something yeah. like that yeah and i think that's a, a good point because we all do it because we love to fish we love to, to catch fish we love to eat fish yeah um but we don't have to kill everything that's out there and and uh i think that there's a there's a lot more i guess one thing that probably a lot of people may or may not have experienced, and it clicked for me um, kind of whenever I got more involved with those guys about, you know, you've got a seven-pound trout on the line. It's something that you get super excited about right mm -hmm. off the bat because yeah. it's, a, it's a great fish. And used to, I just wanted to get that fish in and hurry up and get it on my stringer. Now I get more enjoyment out of watching that fish swim off than I do on putting it mm -hmm. on my stringer. And I think it's a it's a, a mental concept that you have to just grasp. And, yeah, uh, it is. It definitely is. There's, it's, for me, it was like a switch. You know, now I love to go catch fish. Somebody wants to have a fish fry, but I'm bringing in the, you know, the 15-inchers the and mm -hmm. the barely legal fish. Uh, all the big trout, I, I always let them go. Um, I enjoy watching them swim off. I love to take that fish after he just gave me that fight or mm -hmm. she gave me that fight, get her up, you know, appreciate her, eyeball her, look her in the eyes, and then uh, grab her by the tail and under her stomach and get her kind of revived and watch her shoot off. Yeah. If that doesn't light you up, you know, maybe it's not your thing. Yeah, maybe it's but, not. Yeah. But if it if if you if you feel passionate about our fisheries and about what we all like to do as sportsmen, uh, I think you'll find that you'll get as much uh, enjoyment out of that as you will stringing her up. Uh, yeah. what, what was the turning point for you with that? Was that speckled truth guys and kind of listening to that? Or was it uh, more of you just kind of got to a point where it was just too much? I think it was a it was probably a little bit of both. Mm -hmm. um, Kyle Johnson, you know, is is, uh, is one of our, our other Blue Wave guys. Mm -hmm. And he's real passionate about it. And uh, so some of that rubbed off on me too. But as I've gotten older, 
uh, when I say I was part of the problem, not the solution, I'm really talking about when I was in my 20s. I was yeah. mad at everything, yeah. you know, yeah. deer, fish. I wanted to kill them all, <laughs> you know. Uh, but as you grow up, uh, and I think as you realize, too, uh, another important thing is how much it's changed from when I was a kid. You know, we used to uh, go snapper fishing, and there were not that there's not an abundance now because there is, but there, but snapper was just, it was just, they were there for the taking everywhere. And, yeah. and speckle trout. Uh, I grew up fishing at Horn Island where it was never about uh, could you catch a limit. It was how long it would take you maybe. Yeah. Um, <laughs> as I've gotten older, I've had trips to Horn Island where I've struck out, hadn't caught yeah. a trout, yeah. you know. And and so that never happened when I was a teenager or when I really? was 20. Really, it never, never happened. happened. At Horn yeah. Island. At Horn Island, wow. it never happened. Middle of the day, 2 o'clock, 3 o'clock, doesn't matter. It was even though those fish are more active at dusk and dawn, you could catch fish, you could catch speckled trout at Horn Island just any time you went. Wow. It's not like that anymore. It's you not. Know, whether it's oil spill, whether it's overfishing, I don't know what all the things that could be, but I'm telling you it's not that way. And so it, to me that made me shift gears also because yeah. I, I see and realize in my lifetime how much it's changed. And then I think back to my grandfather with those tarpon yeah. and how much that's changed. So I think all of that made me want to be more part of, of you know getting a, a resolution a and a solution to making it good because i want my grandsons to grow up and and yeah. i would love for them to go to horn island and not be able to strike out yeah and right now i, I you think can do it. yeah yeah I, I i think that there's a way that we can make the ecosystem better than what what it is right now or what it even used to be you know, I agree. It just I, takes I a community I think that there effort. was. I think, yeah, I think it takes or an equal effort. Really a people. global effort. But it, yeah. uh, specifically our waters, if we all band together and we make these changes that are better for for our water, for our yeah. fish, uh, it does make a difference. People think, you know, well, I'm just one person. Yeah. But, you know, one person can't pick up, you know, 10,000 pounds, but you get enough people, you yeah. can pick up 10,000 pounds. And I think that same methodology applies to – conservation it's not one person's not going to be able to fix yeah. it but if you can get enough people that see and perceive that value of what that does for uh for our fishery and for our future for the the people coming up behind us because you know uh i'm i'm a good bit older than you are but one day i'm not going to be here yeah and uh that so there's a whole nother generation that's coming up behind us and um you know mr fred tusi just turned 104 years old today and uh, I know you know Fred, <laughs> yeah, don't you? Yeah, I do. Yeah. So, I mean, Fred was one of the original sportsmen. Man, that would be crazy to Go sit Show. down and talk with him. <laughs> so he, he pulled a little surprise visit on me Friday. Did he really? So came by the shop. His daughter, her name's Linda, she comes in and says, hey, is Joey here? I said, yeah, that's me. And she said, Mr. Fred's out in the van, wants to see you. So I walked outside, and he just wanted to see how I was doing because he would – he was driving himself around up till four or five years ago. At a hundred? At a hundred. He was driving <laughs> and, and doing it without accidents. And guys for all you guys that don't know Mr. Tusi, Tusi's marina was located in Gauchet and uh Mr. Tusi's a local legend. He's a best local trout living fish. legend. Yes. Best trout fisherman he, around uh, the Gulf Coast. Absolutely. He he actually you know, at a young age I had a little seventeen foot Mitchell and I'm running around the river and one particular day, he was sitting there catching white trout like he did, one after another. <laughs> and I keep inching a little closer to him and a little closer to him. And he finally uh, waved me over and said, here, tie it to my boat. Let me show you how to do this. 
so he showed me how to rig the sparkle beetle and this and that and and I went to catching white trout one after another, and uh, and he st- we we talked about that yet uh, Friday. <laughs> Did you? Yeah, he remembered he it. He absolutely remembers it. He is sharp as a tack. <laughs> is man. he really? Absolutely. Man, that might be cool. To sit so down he, I, I think he had some kind of maybe, he had some maybe like a little mini stroke or something. I may be misspeaking there, but he he still speaks well. Uh-huh. But he's not quite as fast talking as I mean, he used to be. He's 104, man. I mean, right, right, <laughs> yeah. But uh, so when they pulled in the shop and went out, I talked to him. We talked about that. We reminisced about a few other things, like him borrowing some scaffolding from me when he was about 95 to get on top of his shed and fix some tin. Jesus uh, Christ. But anyway, uh, I said, Mr. Fred, let me get a picture with you. And he said, okay. And he opened the door up, and out he came and walked right over. He wanted to do it by my sign, uh, by the Furlan sign out front. So I, I actually posted a picture on Facebook this morning wishing him a happy birthday of me and him standing in front of the sign. And, uh, I mean, he got right out and then right back in that car. and He's uh, walking at 104. Walking at 104. And wow. and mind is sharp as a tack. I mean, it's <laughs> unreal. It would be cool to get him on a podcast. Yeah, maybe so. He was born in 1918. Imagine the changes that, that you and I are talking about right now Imagine those changes for him from 1918 to now. I mean, in the 30s, he was. I mean, he was living here in the 30s. Like he's lived here his whole life. He has lived here his whole life. He worked at Ingalls. Uh, I don't remember exactly what he was doing. Maybe uh, he hired in like as a ship fitter or something. Wow. He he quit and opened Tusi's Fish Camp, and he had the little rental boats and all that out of Mary Walker. Sold live shrimp, and uh, you know he he maintained that for a very long time, and. Um, I know it's a little off topic, but he had a guy named Junior. I don't know Junior's last name, and we talked about Junior too. Junior used to kind of man the bait shop for him when he wasn't there because Mr. Fred would be gone. He'd be fishing. That was what he liked <laughs> That's what do. he liked to do. Huh? And uh, Junior would always – never fail. When you go down there, he would say something so off the wall, you just didn't even know what to think about it. And so one of his favorite things to tell people was, as he's getting your shrimp out, he would say, yeah, well, uh, Nancy and, and uh, Ronald uh, Reagan just came through here on a jet ski. That was back whenever Ronald Reagan was president, and uh, <laughs> you know, you know, it didn't happen. That was just Junior, and and, uh, and Junior would also where Mr. Fred was an open book. And he would tell you if you said, "Mr. Fred, you catching any white trout or speckled trout?" Oh yes, sir. You go down to the train trussle and you get the fourth pole over. There's a, you know, he was an open book, and Junior was actually a very good trout fisherman. But boy, he would lie to you. <laughs> he would tell you that he's been catching them one place, and you'd see him pull out in a boat and go the hot, no, opposite the direction. <laughs> but uh, but yeah. So uh, anyway, pretty neat, pretty neat stuff. Yeah, it is. Yeah, man, I definitely think that I I I do what you were saying about conservation. Though, I definitely think that. If we did band together as a community a little bit more between, you know, I mean, just think about all the stuff. We, we already have the Mississippi Gulf, you know, fishing banks. Y'all are making oysters and stuff. I mean, I think we're doing, I think we are doing good, but I think there's always something more that can be done whenever it comes to the ecosystem. So I agree. I, I do appreciate your words of wisdom there for sure. Yeah, no problem. <laughs> no problem. Yeah, thanks, man. Hey, and I uh, really appreciate you coming on the podcast, man. This was really cool cool yeah. thing to thanks do for cool me. place to do it honestly it is, yeah, it is. thanks show. for having me it's uh i know we've been trying to do it for a while i'm glad we yeah. finally got together yeah. and uh got it done that's the way these things go man you have to keep pounding at people hopefully i hope nobody gets aggravated with me but it's kind of the way the thing goes you gotta oh, man. pound hey, it's pound been, eventually been fun. get it done been absolutely <laughs> fun cool all right guys well catch y'all later next time say bye jerry all right see you later
Thanks for listening, everybody. Please give us a follow on Facebook or Instagram at Tunatown Talks. Also, if you'd like to book a charter with me, you can do so by visiting our website at mgfishing.com. That's Mexican Gulf website, where you'll find my online booking calendar with all my open dates. And remember, guys, always be safe while out on the water. Man.